Turn in your Bible, if you will, please, with me. The Judges chapter 10. We take up again the text of our study and consideration in these days. Judges chapter 10. And reading this morning only verses 6 through 9. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was sore distressed. Turn with me, if you will, please, again in your hymn books to number 473, and stand with me again, please, to sing 473. With tears of anguish I lament, here at thy cross, my God, my passion, pride, and discontent and vile ingratitude. With tears of anguish I lament here at thy cross, my God. My passion, pride, and discontent and violent gratitude. Oh, was there e'er a heart so base, so false as mine has been, so faithless to its promises, so prone to every sin. Yet I remember thy commands are holy, just, and true. I feel that what my God demands is his most rightful due. Thy word I hear, thy counsel's way, and all thy works approve. Still nature finds it hard to 
way and harder yet to love. How long, dear Savior, shall I feel this warfare in my breast? In mercy bow this stubborn will and give my spirit rest. Break sovereign grace, oh break the charm and set the captive free. Reveal almighty God thy and haste to rescue me. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. In the message on last week, we looked together at these first five verses in the tenth chapter of God's record of the judges in Israel's history. Having come through our prolonged studies in chapter nine, you'll recall that when we arrived at this first five verses in chapter 10 here, I referred to them as a cooling breeze of refreshment, blowing across a green oasis in the middle of a parched desert of death and destruction. Surely that is not an exaggerated description. Those five verses, a cooling breeze of refreshment blowing across a green oasis in the middle of a parched desert of death and destruction. Surely that is so. I told you on last week, I reminded you how that before we arrived at chapter 10, all through chapter 9, we used words that made us almost nauseous to hear. Vileness. Villains, villainous, tyranny, fratricide, all those terrible, vile expressions, the entire ninth chapter is filled with it. And then we came to chapter 10, and in those first five, five verses placed in our, here in our text, we found what I call Cooling breezes. But then in these next four verses. Here today that I read in your hearing. Verse 6 through 9. We come to these next four verses. And they're nothing less than a renewed blast of scorching desolation. We come to verse 6. And find our hearts shocked again with this stunning announcement. The children of Israel did evil again. 
After 45 years, we learned in verse 1 through 5, after 45 years of national calm and tranquility, after 45 years of quiet national rest and universal prosperity, after 45 years of sacred communion with their God and evidences of His divine faith, after all of that, this announcement falls like a shocking bolt of fiery lightning out of an unclouded clear blue sky, the children of Israel did evil again. Matthew Henry called this phrase the children of evil did children of Israel did evil again. Matthew Henry called that phrase the oft recurring monotonous formula expressing Israel's stupid obstinacy. I could well take out the word Israel out of that quote and put my name. The oft recurring monotonous formula expressing John's stupid obstinacy. Here it is again. Here's the phrase again. Here it is again. Only here, this time, this record appalls our worst expectations by showing us not just apostasy, but a seeming attempt by the people of Israel to outdo all of their previous forays in apostasy into a world of idolatry and destruction. Again, Matthew Henry said, they worshipped many gods. Not only their old demons, Balaam and Ashtaroth, which the Canaanites had worshipped, but as if they would proclaim their folly to all their neighbors, they served the gods of Syria, and Zidon, and Moab, and Ammon, and the Philistine. And then he says, it looks as if the chief trade of Israel had been to import the deities of all their neighbors. Not satisfied just to return to their former idols, they called for a wholesale adoption of every pagan thing within their reach. Seven are listed here in our text. Look with me at them for only a moment. It reads like a litany of terror and filth. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Balaam, the chief god of the Phoenician pantheon. The son of Dagon, which represented grain. So then he was the god of the crops and the herds. 
The word, by the way, this word Balaam is in the Hebrew is in the plural. He was worshipped by these pagans and by Israel by offering sacrifices from the harvest because he was the God of the grain. And then Ashtaroth in our verse. This was the Sidonian goddess. By the way, this name is also in the plural. This was the goddess of sensual pleasure. And it was worshipped with wild displays of sensuality. Yes, indeed, even orgies. This was uniquely a Canaanite god. And then we're told they worshipped the gods of Syria. That's Belus and Saturn. And then the gods of Zidon, which was the equivalent of Ashtaroth among those people. And then the gods of Moab, which was none less than Baal Peor. This god also was worshipped by the vilest display of sensuality. And then we're told they worship the gods of the children of Ammon. That is that horrible god Molech. He was worshipped by the sacrificing of humans' lives in the children. Sacrificing the children. These sacrifices in their performance were also accompanied by the most grotesque forms of immorality. This, by the way, was the most detestable form of idolatry and it was frequently denounced by the preaching of God's prophets that were sent to Israel. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 21 warned Israel and thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire of Molech. Leviticus 18 verse 20. Vile. Vile. And our text tells us Israel turned to this. And then finally. As they say last but not least. Gods of the Philistines. Dagon and Beelzebub. Beelzebub, by the way, that name means the Lord of the heavens or the Lord of spirits. The demons. You remember in Luke chapter 11 and verse 19, thereabouts that the Lord Jesus himself was accused of. They said he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Because he was the God of demon spirits. And our Lord denies it, of course. Fawcett in his commentary said, Oh, seven idols, seven idols are mentioned here as served by Israel. Just as seven heathen nations are mentioned in verse 11 and 12. Out of whose hands Jehovah had delivered his people. 
Fawcett said Israel had repaid the sevenfold divine deliverance with sevenfold idolatry. Their fullness of iniquity rivaled his fullness of grace. My goodness. Again, I cannot prevent but to pause and take an introspective look. It seems that as my brother prayed, and as is so often prayed around here, it seems that with every kindness and grace and goodness of God that, that I experience, I find some way to turn it against it, some way to turn it to evil, some way to turn it to idolatry. Seven seven idols corresponding to the seven nations God gave them delivered from. Oh, not just the two of their former days. When we get to chapter 10 and verse 6, we find it's not just the two idols of their former days of idolatry. No, only seven will do. To quench their impassioned carnal lust now. Seven. Oh, surely. Here's the age old principle that's spelled out for us in Luke chapter 11 on clear and open display here in chapter 10 of the book of Judges. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 24, the Bible simply strictly says this. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walked through dry places, seeking rest. Finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, verse 25, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. There was this green oasis with warm, beautiful, cooling breezes in verses 1 through 5 for all those 45 years. And now they've turned back and their condition is worse than it ever was before. By the way, this will always prevail in hypocrites. It's the hypocrite's curse. Put on a mask and appeal, appear to be putting away the gods of this world, but when their heart turns back to where their heart has always been in the world, they'll be seven times worse. Seeming to try to outdo themselves in their evil. But now notice again this in verse 6. Our text tells us that not only has Israel overreached all of their own putrid record in worshiping other gods, but this sickening footnote is attached by God's holy inspiration. Listen to it. They forsook the Lord and served Him not. Served 
him not. They forsook the Lord. The Hebrew word means to relinquish. And the good Dr. Gill said, now they are so dreadfully sunk in idolatry that they have wholly forsaken his worship at his tabernacle and made no pretensions to it, but entirely neglected it. I mean, the Holy Spirit would have us to know that not only have they embraced all this vile, damnable idolatry, but in the middle of it, they aren't even carrying on any pretense of worshiping the God of Israel. They forsook him. Oh, says Bush, and I quote, the defection here described was undoubtedly very gross and of an aggravated enormity. Aggravated enormity indeed. Another has illustrated it even more graphically when he says, and I quote, all sense of niceness has deserted Israel. And it plunges heedlessly into a dark sea of obscurity and filth. Now turning from God, turning from God in the wake of 45 years of blessings, they cannot even abide the worship of Him in conjunction with their God. They cannot abide it, must, but must shut him out completely. Whoa, is that not what happens to the sinner? My brother in his prayer this morning, is that not what has happened in America? It's not just that we've turned to idols, but now we've reached that stage in our idolatry that we can abide any devil, but not God. We cannot abide the worship of God. And our government is fast moving in a direction to put an end to it completely. We can abide every form of idolatry. We can offer up our children to Molech and burn them in sacrifices. We can engage in orgies. We can have every kind of violence accepted in our midst. But this we cannot abide. We cannot worship this God. Forsook him. Verse 6. Forsook the Lord. And served him not. We can serve all of these. But not this God. They abandoned his worship entirely. Could I just issue a warning here to our hearts? Though this record of transition from the scenes of verse 1 through 5 to the scenes of verse 6, it's only one verse away, down to verse 5 and then boom, here's verse 6. That transition seems abrupt and sudden, no doubt. But there's no doubt that the actual change did not occur in a day. Follow me now. 
The actual change did not occur in a day. Look at chapter 2 in our book of Judges. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Verse 17. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a whoring after other gods, bowed themselves unto them, and turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. But they did not so. I simply want you to understand this morning. It may seem like a fast tradition, uh, transition to move from verse 5 to verse 6, but that didn't happen in a day. Listen now. Listen, one commentator said this. Probably their whoring after other gods began beneath the cloak of orthodox worship. For a certain time, material prosperity may seem to be consistent with religion. Albeit its delusions quickly lead to the carnal floods of damning and the damming up of which may never be possible. Let me just put it in my simple English for you. Oh, how long may a man, a woman, a young person, how long may a person come to the tabernacle and perform religion while their hearts are secretly sucking poison from the flowers of the world. Oh yes, they come and they go through the motions and they smile and they look spiritual. And for all outward appearances, do you think they're, they're doing well? And in their heart, in their heart, they're sucking poison from the flowers of the world. This transition didn't happen overnight. No doubt Israel was carrying on the worship in the tabernacle, carrying on the work, carrying on the things that the Lord had prescribed for them. No doubt they were. But in their heart. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. Ye hypocrites, said our Lord. Well, did he say this? Prophesy of you, saying, This people draw nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mm. Verse 9, but in vain they do worship me. Teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. In vain they do worship me. Is it possible to worship God and it be vanity? Oh yes. 
Oh yes, oh yes. Under the cloak, that commentator said, they went along for a long time under the cloak of orthodox worship. But in their hearts, they were sucking from the flowers of the idolatry around them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that cause bells of alarm to go off in anybody's soul this morning? Is this description of ancient Israel not mirrored completely in the America of today? Is it not mirrored sometimes in my own heart? Any God but this God is the motto of our fallen culture today. But we'll carry on with religion. We'll just keep right on with it. We'll come to our services and well, everything looks good. It looks healthy. And look, look how, look at all these folk we brought in here. It all looks healthy. But in the heart, it's idolatry. Now I ask you, and we may well ask, what would cause such a fall? What would cause such a fall? Well, I think Fawcett in his commentary got the answer right when he said this. The prosperity of the heathen nations around them, their great numbers, and the absence of Jehovah's, the absence in Jehovah's worship of all gratifications of the carnal appetite. Oh my goodness. Can I read those again for you? Again, does it strike a chord with you? Why have we done what we've done? What our brother prayed about. Why have we turned? Fawcett lists three things. The prosperity of the heathen nations around them. Oh, have we not in America, have we not looked at the prosperity? We've had 200 years of the blessings of God and prosperity abounds. And all that prosperity in many has distracted their hearts from the true worship of God. And he lists their great numbers. <laughs> These young fellows are going to an institution which my wife and I remember when it was founded. Mrs. Gormley, some of the rest of us were part in those institutions. The great wave of what was called fundamentalism and independence. And it was all about numbers and churches back then in the early 70s. We bought buses by the fleets. I mean, we bought fleets of buses and we were bussing them in from all over the place. It was all about the numbers. All about the numbers. We'd get a report every Monday morning. We had 7,232 children bust in yesterday. All about the numbers. But in the heart, godliness was not growing. And thirdly, dear old Fawcett mentions the absence in Jehovah's worship 
of all gratifications to the carnal appetite. Well, we took care of that in America, didn't we? We said, you know what? We'll just incorporate them. We don't have to stand against any of that. I mean, we don't have to, we don't have to preach any longer that folks ought, ought not to go down to the dance hall and raise hell and drink. We don't have to preach against any of that anymore. We don't have to preach against anything. I'll tell you what, we'll just hire the band and move them into church. Amen. The absence in Jehovah's worship of all gratifications of carnal and he even mentions them he says such as dancing well we got churches that do that now we don't have to deny that artistic performances oh we got churches full of those we don't have to and scenes all of which even actual libertinism all of this was common in the worship of idols and he says they had Bewitched Israel. All of this goings on bewitched Israel and it drew their hearts away from the worship of God. You know, I was talking to my wife this week. I invite people to come and visit with us all the time. I invite people to come to our church. But I always straight up tell them immediately, but you're not going to like it because there's nothing here or your entertainment. We gather to worship our God. We're not here to entertain. Your carnal appetites. There's six days of that already. We're not going to add a seventh. Wisely did blessed old Rogers. In 1650. 1615. In 1615. Rogers asked and answered this question. Why are men so prone. To idolatry. Always. Away. From the true God. And then he answered it. Quote. Because it hath. That is the world. It hath so many. Player like toys. And baubles. Of sight. To please the eyes. And sonnets. To deceive the ear. That it makes men to think that they have a piece of paradise in their own bosom. That's why men go into idolatry. They find things that entertain them. Things that please their eyes. Things that music and things that please their ears. And, and uh, all of a sudden they think they've got a piece of paradise in their own bosom. And the reality is they've departed from the true worship of God and their serving idols. Right under the cloak of orthodoxy. I know this is hard preaching this morning. But I didn't write the book. I'm just trying to bring it to you. So then now, what will our God think of it all? What will our God think of it all? His answer is swift and shocking. Verse 7. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them. Hmm. Sold them. 
into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of Amorites, which is in Gilead. He sold them into slavery. Someone has well said, listen to it now, you young people, take this thought to your heart. To entertain sin as a guest is to end up a slave under its cruel mastery. To entertain sin as a guest is to end up a slave under its cruel mastery. And that in short order. In other words, it won't take long. It won't take long. Our God will not sit idly by. Judgment was written out for Israel. This is all that remains for Israel. Judgment. And if they would, if they would outdo their former defections, He will outdo His former judgments. Eighteen years. You listening to me? Eighteen years, the cries of hungry Israelite babies was heard under the crushing boots of hostile deprivation. Eighteen years, eighteen years of groans of slavish labor of Israel men was heard under the cold tyranny of pagan cruelty. Eighteen years, God's voice was not heard except in the providence of his steel-hard judgment. Eighteen years. Eighteen years. Oh, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10 tells us that even the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The Hebrew word there is the word oxaltery. Oxari. The word means violent. It means deadly. Proverbs 12 and verse 10. The tender mercies of the wicked are violent and deadly. Even their tender mercies are violent and deadly. Their adopted companions. In verse 8 we're told are said to have vexed them and oppressed them. If you've got an old time King James Bible and I hope you do. If you don't, I hope you'll get one. You'll have the marginal readings. Two words used there. Vexed. The Hebrew word roats. It means to break in pieces. And the word oppress roats. It means to crush and thus I titled my message this morning, Dashed in Pieces and Crushed. That's what happened to Israel. That's what happened to Israel. That was God's response. If they will outdo their former idolatries, He will outdo His former judgments. Eighteen years, old Bush said, the terms employed in the original of this text 
indicate the severity of the oppression and they are very expressive. They import crushing and breaking to pieces. A metaphor apparently drawn from the action of two millstones upon the substance placed between them to which Henry strikingly compares the condition of the Israelites at this time under the grinding oppression of these two hostile powers on the two sides, the Ammonites and the Philistines. God ground them to powder. By the way, these grinding forces are the companions of their own choosing. Don't miss that. These grinding, crushing forces are the companions of their own choosing. When I thought about that, I thought about text in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Preaching in the jail, I couldn't tell you. I don't even know over the 52 years that I've been preaching in jail. 52 years I've been preaching in jail. I couldn't tell you how many times I've preached from that text. The prodigal son went out and chose his companions, didn't he? Oh, while the money lasted and the liquor flowed, the party was on and he had these great companions. Until the money ran out. Then his chosen companions became his chosen oppressors. And he wound up in a hog pen with nothing to eat. And the farmer wouldn't even let him eat the hog's food. Luke chapter 15. These grinding forces were the companions of their own choosing. Young people, you better be careful. You better be wise in your choices of companions. So now what is their state after 18 years under the heels of their own chosen masters? Well, verse 9 tells us at the end, Israel was sore distressed. Sore is a Hebrew word translated sore means vehemently, utterly, completely. Distressed. Yotzar. It means to press or squeeze into a small space. What was the result of their idolatrous choices? It was this. They were crushed and squeezed into a small space. Oh, can I just point out to you the blessed use of the Hebrew words in this text. Do you remember how I talked to you in verse 1 of this chapter just last week? Do you remember I took up that word defend? After Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel. Do you remember I gave you the Hebrew, the translation of that word, that word used in verse 1? It means, literally, it simply means a wide open space. Unfettered. God raised up these two men 
Tola and pure. Uh, sorry, Tola. And Dobo. Dodo, he raised these men up to bring Israel into a large open space. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know how other people feel. I guess I'm sure I'd feel different if I'd been reared in a city, New York, Chicago. But I grew up in the country. And I just love wide open space. I don't like to get hemmed in. I don't like to feel like I'm locked into something. I want to be able to breathe. What a beautiful picture that word defend in verse 1. It means to be in a large, wide open space. Oh, there couldn't be a greater contrast than this word used in verse 9. Distressed. It means literally to be squeezed into a small space. You see, following God, you find yourself in wide open spaces where you can breathe. But when you turn to idols, you find yourself crushed, squeezed. Oh, it's not liberty. The drug crowd has proven, proven that. You say, I want, oh, I just, I've heard artists say this. I only take drugs to expand my mind to allow. There's no expansion there. Friend, you're being squeezed in. You're being locked in. If you don't believe it, just try to quit. You'll find out you weren't in an open space. You were being locked in a room and the walls are closing in on you. That's the word used in the Hebrew here. To squeeze. Israel was crushed. Broken to pieces. What a contrast between verse 1 and verse 9. Can I just leave you with this thought? Sin always does that. Sin always does that. Sin always does that. It will squeeze you into a place you've never wanted to be. Hear me? Sin will squeeze you into a place you never wanted to be. So now, could I conclude this morning with the summarizing words of another preacher far better than me? I use other preachers' words a lot, as you know. And I had no words to compare with these words. Someone said that among the invaluable lessons of Holy Scripture, not the least valuable is the insight given by its histories into the true nature of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked is the prophet's description of the heart of man and the history of the Israelites not the least of which here in this text is a signal illustration of this truth. We are apt to think that if we had passed through the waters of the Red Sea as Israel had, 
If we had seen Mount Sinai on a blaze, if we had eaten the manna from heaven and drank the water out of a stony rock and been led to victory by a man like Joshua, Barak, Deborah, and Gideon, if we had seen all of that, we never could have forgotten such signal mercies. We never could have been unfaithful to the gracious author of these things. We could never have preferred the vain idols of the heathen over this living God. That's what we tend to think. Still more do we think that if we had seen the only begotten Son of the living God, Oh, if we had seen Him full of grace and truth and heard His wondrous words and saw His mighty works and witnessed His cross and talked with Him after the resurrection, we should not be the worldly lukewarm disciples we are now, but we are wrong in our thinking. The image of the human heart reflected in the history of Israel is a more true and faithful one than the portrait of our own self-love. And that image is one of a depraved human will, constantly disaffecting from rectitude, constantly drawn aside from truth and godliness, constantly selfish, corrupt. That is the true picture painted here. This one said, while they shrunk from the lofty obligations of the holy service of God, they abandoned themselves with willingness of mind to the base servitude of idols. Consenting to their shameful requirements, gloating in their abominable rights. The desire to be like the nations, the influence of example all around them, the mysterious power of supernatural and superstition, the agreement between the sensual heart and the sensual rights of idolatry were focuses, forces steadily turning them away from God and constantly prevailing over the institutions of repentance. But it is just the same with other kinds of sin which strike their roots deep into the hearts of men and find ready consent in the diseased moral conditions of their hearts. For a moment, perhaps, their power may be weakened by some opposite force, but unless the fountain of the will is really renewed, Sweetened by the indwelling of God's Spirit, the same spectacle will be exhibited as in the case of the Israelites. If your will has never been changed. <laughs> Dear Lord, we've got a prevailing false gospel running around this country telling people that salvation is a decision of the mind. All you've got to do is decide. I used to sing, my wife and I in circles we grew up in, we used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that's a wonderful thought. I'm not disparaging that. 
I'm not disparaging that. But I'll tell you right now, this thing of salvation is more than a decision. Because I might make one decision today and I might change and have a different decision tomorrow. It's going to take more than a decision. It's going to take a repair of the will. The will. This writer said, unless the fountain of the will is renewed and sweetened by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the same spectacle will be exhibited in us. The character which has been forced back, returning surely and steadily to its natural bent. The previous tastes, manners, and ways of life will be restored to their old supremacy. And it will be found that neither reason, nor experience, nor common sense, nor even self-interest are able to prevent this. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin, nor the leper his spots. No more can they do good that are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13.23 The evil bent of a corrupt nature will always return to its evil. <clears throat> I ask pastors when I meet them these days, what is the greatest challenge you face? Do you know what their answer is? Universally, without exception. Discipleship. We can't seem to get people discipled. Really. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason they're struggling with Discipleship is their will was never changed. Their will. Israel turned back. Their wills had not been changed. So now I ask and conclude, where is your heart today? Are you functioning under the canvas, the canopy of orthodox? But your heart is really out there in the world. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart right now? What will our God do? He's crushed them. Turn with me in your hymn book, please. Stand with me. Turn in your hymn book to number 482. Sing together. 482. O Lord, thy tender mercy hears contrition's humble sigh. Thy hand indulgence wipes the tears from sorrow weeping eye. Stand with me, please, and sing.
that wipes the tears from sorrow's weeping eyes. See, low before thy throne of grace, a sinful Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? Hast thou not said return? Hast thou not said return? Hast thou not said return? Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? Hast thou not said return? Oh, shine on this benighted heart with beams of mercy shine. And let thy healing voice impart a taste of joys divine, a taste of joys divine, a taste of joys divine. A taste of joys divine. Thy presence only can bestow delights which never glory. Be this my solace here below. And my eternal joy, and my eternal joy, and my eternal joy, be this.